Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money in Investing show. This week we are looking at the world of investment properties. It's a huge subject. There's lots of notes to take out of this, but as always, please do make sure you take plenty of action. Need any help? Reach out to the team. Enjoy the show. Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money in Investing show with me, your host, Andrew Baxter, and as always, my offsider and co-host, Mitchell Lorenzo. Thanks for having me on the show, Mr. Baxter. Now, what we're about to talk about, I'm actually really passionate about, and I know you are too, great wealth creation strategy, and that is, of course, the ultimate investment property. I'm going to talk about everything that's involved there. Indeed, investment property is one of the most appealing investment classes, I think, for so many people. It's tangible, bricks and mortar, you've got something to look at uh, over time, typically would appreciate in value can potentially be a source of cash flow and is something that people can relate to because everybody needs somewhere to live, including your tenants. That's right. And we know how many Australians, I think there's a really large chunk of society that have an investment property. I know we both do. I bought one a couple of years ago and it's been nothing but beneficial for me. It's the best place to get started uh, on the property ladder. Um, and then, uh, yeah, as I say, everyone needs somewhere to live. And there's a lot of scrutiny in the rental space currently uh, with rents moving higher, but that's simply a factor of market forces. I don't think it's necessarily the bad landlord uh, moving through there. And, uh, you know, there's, there's plenty of political stuff you could throw into the mix there about rent capping and all that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, that's not the, co- the scope of what we're covering today. Today, we are going to be looking at, you know, what's it all about? How do you get started? Why do you get started? And what's the best way to do it? All right, let's talk about some objectives of owning an investment yeah. property in the first place, AB. If you had to put a, a sort of a couple of marker points there for us, what would they be? Look, probably three areas. One is capital gain. And on that, I would also argue leveraged capital gain because you, know, you don't buy the property outright. Uh, so you've got a relatively small amount of money uh, that's exposed to a bigger asset that ideally will go up in value for you. So capital gain being one. 20% deposit for an investment property, is that, that correct? That is correct. Currently 20% is what the banks look for in terms of deposit. So you put down your 20%, you then own a property, uh, you're paying the mortgage on the other 80% or at least your tenants should be for you. And, and then as that property improves in value, uh, that return of course is divided by the 20% you've put down, giving you a geared return on your investment in, in, in the perfect world. Can go the other way too, of course. But That's right, property doubles every seven years in quotation marks, right? Yeah. Definitely in quotation marks, that one, that's for sure. But you know, on the grind typically does well. Got you. So long-term capital growth, what about some other goals of investment okay, properties? A couple, couple of other areas, uh, you know, we tied into that one, leverage, I guess, you know, the ability to generate a form of income as well, uh, above and beyond um, you know, that which you might be earning on cash at the bank. Uh, and I guess the third area is potential tax benefits too, which, you know, we're in an environment, particularly in Australia, where we are a relatively highly taxed country. Uh, you know, we've got a fairly complex uh, tax legislation. I, I was reading the other day, it used to be, I think 15 years ago, it was 1,100 pages of tax code. Currently, it's 14,500 pages of oh, tax that's code. crazy. Uh, and so for your average meat and potatoes, Joe Bag of Donuts, mum and dad investor that, that, are, that, that, that are working, Getting some level of tax deductibility when you're a pay-as-you-go employee is actually quite tricky, and investment properties potentially do offer a legitimate and justifiable way of getting your tax bill down and building your assets. So, you know, they play a huge part. You know, you look at teachers and nurses, for example, both in the public sector, where you, know, you get paid your wage and, and, and then you get your tax on it, of course. Great way for those guys to get their tax burden down and start building some wealth for the good work that they do for society. Absolutely. Speaking of which, which rolls into our next conversation to flesh that out a little more would be in respect to gearing. Mm. So negative gearing, positive gearing. Mm. Two terms we hear a lot about in the investment property space, AB. How does each one work? How do you get to each one? 
Well, it's interesting when people say, oh, like, look, what, are, what are the types of investment property? I'd probably break them down literally into those two camps, okay. either negatively or positively geared. So starting um, on, the, on the negative geared front, that's where the cost of owning the property or holding the property uh, through the interest payable on the loan to buy it, on the 80% uh, of the loan, um, and the running costs of the property are combined higher than what the rent is. Uh, did, did, sorry to only drop those costs. Does that span as far as water and rates, property, total insurances, cost. all that kind of everything? Yeah, total cost. So if you think about what your overall holding cost is on that property, uh, and let's say it's $1,000 a week, and the rent that you bring in on that property is $700 a week, there's a shortfall of $300 a week. So currently under tax legislation, that $300 is claimable. So you offset that $300 a week loss that you're making on having that investment property effectively against your income tax bill. Got you. That sounds pretty attractive. It's something that's been quite politicized as to you know the equality and fairness of that. Um, and, and you know, is negative gearing responsible for, for driving rent up? And it's actually not the case, it's actually the opposite because if rents are higher, then there's no negative gearing. You cover the cost of the property, of course, but um, let's not that, that statement of fact get in the way of a political discussion. Um, but yeah, that, that, that shortfall then, as I say, you can offset against your, your income tax uh, and effectively reduce your tax bill legitimately. And, and effectively, I guess the ATO are contributing toward you over a longer period of time, owning an asset that goes up in value. So there are people that would look at that and go, it's not fair that the tax office is subsidising it. That's currently the tax legislation in Australia. Our job is not to, of course, uh, write the rules, it's to play to them. Okay, so question for you, AB, negative gearing, you're obviously losing money each week or each month, it's costing you. And what stage of life would you look at undertaking that as a real strategy? I think anyone that's got a tax liability effectively, and I would also argue on that a stable job. Um, And I'll I'll give you an example of what can go wrong with that in a few moments time. But, you know, if you're in a situation where you're paying tax and you've got a stable job and you've got surplus cash flow to be able to buy a a property, it's a a win-win across the board because your money is working harder for you. You're effectively reducing your tax bill, which is never a bad thing. Um, and, uh, And you're providing somewhere for someone to live in. So it's a win across the board. Now, when would you do that? When, when you're earning, when you've got big tax liabilities uh, and when you've got a level of stability in your job. And, you know, I had a client a number of years ago who was in the mining space. She was a very senior uh, geologist um, uh, and very, very well regarded in that industry. And she got made redundant uh, during a, a pullback in the mining sector. And I think at the time she had some like 15 or 16 negatively geared properties. Wow, that's a lot. And... Um, Obviously, they're negatively geared, which means it's costing you to hold them. Well, she had a tax liability. Uh, it was fine when she was on big dollars. Uh, all of a sudden, when those dollars are turned off, you've still got to fund that loss. And effectively, if you don't have a, 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 some tax to offset it against, then that's coming out of your, your pocket. So it was reasonably stressful. She's a smart person, hence why she was in the position she was in. Uh, and rather than sort of trying to wait it out and use the, the redundancy to, to, to keep paying the mortgages, she actually started trading and making income from a trading that covered it anyway. So she didn't touch a principal. She just kept using the process. That's a great story. That's awesome. Yeah, smart, absolutely insanely focused person. Um, 
interestingly, I, when when um, she picked up our course, it was like watching the the you know the whole box set of The Sopranos over a weekend. The whole course was at boot camp within a week and trading within two. So talk about fast track. Crazy. But she had some some urgent need to do that. So that's one of the risks I think of of negative gearing if the cash flow turns off. So I guess that then leads to the other side of the equation. Well, if that's negative geared, what's a, 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 a positively geared property? And matter of fact, I'm actually having lunch with a, a buddy of mine who's been at the forefront of yeah, positively geared property for probably 20 years. Um, That's exciting. Lunch on Friday, yeah, and oh, on Wednesday, sorry. And um, so positively, uh, positive income flow property is where obviously the income you pull from the property is more than the servicing cost of it. Um, and the idea of this, some people don't like it because it means they're not getting the tax deduction, but you're ultimately in an asset that's self-funding. And I think that's actually the perfect model. I'd rather have something that pays for itself uh, than have to be working on the jiggery-pokery on the back end of, oh, at least I've got my tax back. I'd rather have something that's just making me money. And that I think should be the goal for, for every property investor is ultimately for it to be earning more than it's costing. Well, I think it provides a safety net at the end of the day, Mitch, because if you go through that scenario, as, as I discussed with my mining uh, geologist client, um, if you've lost your job, you've got a real problem. Uh, whereas if you've got something that's a, a positive return property that's making money for you week in, week out, the, the stress levels are far far lower. Yeah, you're going to have to pay tax on the money you're making out of it as opposed to getting a tax credit. But at the end of the day, I think in life, you know, paying tax is a litmus test that you're doing something right. And I suspect that the goal of having a property positively geared would be something that you would certainly need to be considering as you near that end of life retirement type phase. 100%. So during your working life where you know, you, you, you've got tax to pay, having a negatively geared property can be attractive. But then as you move into that sort of latter stage of your career, you have to retire debt before you can retire yourself. It's a fundamental plank of financial planning insofar as, um, you know, if you think about the income flow that you need in retirement, it, it, that that's one thing to be able to live and have a quality of life and so on and so forth. But if you've then also got to add in servicing debt on a property as well, it becomes quite punitive. So you know, one of the things that you get towards that back end of, of working life, you start to retire debt, get the uh, equity put back into the property. You may well keep that property and just take some cash and, and, and put it back into to get the mortgage reduced so that it's positively, positively geared rather than negatively. Then you can keep the property and enjoy the income at the time of your life when you probably need it. Plus, if you're in retirement, your tax rate's lower so pulling that income is not a bad thing and so you may see people that have got you know a a, a reasonable property portfolio maybe they've got a dozen properties um, and, and and maybe a number of them are negatively geared um, as you get toward that retirement time you probably sell off a couple of properties to pay the debt down across the portfolio and switch them from being negatively geared to positively geared and that's 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 a really important step to take in retirement that retirement before you retire i love that that's mm. awesome let's now flesh this out beyond so we've gone through positive and negative gear Let's talk about, in actual fact, the investment property types. So house and land, whether you're going to get through yeah. self-managed super, commercial, renos, what are we looking at here? Well, there's a, a hundred and one ways. <laughs> Big question, I yeah, know. I mean, I've done a few different approaches in here. You know, I've built, I've developed, I've, I've done quite a number of different things in there. And so if you start with the, the, the traditional, like, inner city, buy an apartment, rent it out, happy days, or, or an existing dwelling of some description, whether that's a, um, yeah, a multi-dwelling high-rise or block of flats, or, or whether it's just a standalone dwelling, um, yeah, something that's already established. Uh, and I had a couple of great ones of these um, in uh, Turak in Melbourne, and and they're just they're just cash cows. That's awesome. They, they, you know, you, you buy it, it rents out, 
you don't have to think about it. The location, which as we've talked to previously, is you know, absolutely pivotal. I think um, you know, it's not just about value, it's about location with an investment property because somebody that's going to rent it might be renting it because they can't afford to live there, but they can't afford to rent there. So location becomes very, very important. So yeah, Turek was great for that. So every week rents out year after year, no problem. Just you don't even need to think about it. Maybe there's a bit of maintenance to do because it's an older property, but yeah, it's it's a no-brainer. So that idea of something that's established is, is, is quite compelling. Now, of course, as you dive deeper into the expertise of property, and I'm not an expert in property, I've done plenty of it and I've made plenty of money from it, but I'm not, not the go-to expert. We've got people we work with that are, of course, um, is that buying an existing dwelling like that, you don't get a lot of the tax benefits of buying a new property. So your depreciation, for example, on a new build is really quite different. And that's why you need to get, as we've talked of plenty of times in this podcast series, getting educated is absolutely critical. So if you're gonna dive into being into investment properties, get educated on the nuances, not just this, this is giving you the headlines. You need to get into the small print underneath it to really understand where you're at. So if you've got an existing dwelling that's 10, 20, 30, 50 years old, I think mine was probably 70 or 80 years old, one of the ones in, in, in Turek, um, it's not a new build. If it were a brand new build, your depreciation and tax that you can claim back in those first few years are massive. You don't get that in something that's a, a, a more existing dwelling. So that's something that's important. There's no builder's warranty. All of those sorts sure. of things are, are considerations in there, which then leads you into, okay, um, buying off the plan, which is something you know I'm not a huge fan of. Uh, and I know, you know multiple experts in the property space that aren't necessarily advocates for that either insofar as you know, it sometimes you know, only negative stories, of course, but if you buy off the plan, you put your deposit down, the building gets built. And then when it comes time to settlement, if the market is run really hard, I've, I've heard uh, occasions where the developer has torn up the contract going, yeah, we're not selling it to you. Um, here's your deposit back because you were locked in to pay you know, 9.50 for it. It's now worth 1.4. So we're just gonna sell it in the market for 1.4. Oh, See you later. That's terrible, isn't it? And that sort of thing can happen. Or equally on the other side of the coin uh, where the market's moved against you. Uh, and let's say you've got a 900 grand settlement that's coming up and the property's only valuing up at 650. Uh, they'll make you, they'll enforce their side of the contract. So you've got to pay 900 for something that's effectively worth 650. So buying off the plan, can incur a, a little bit of risk there. I guess the other side of the coin is by putting down a, a deposit when you buy off the plan and let's say there's three years until the building is is complete, it gives you time to improve your overall wealth circumstances and build in. You've only put down a relatively small amount of cash. So yeah, there is an argument for it in that respect, but I think there's a, a little bit of risk on um, in that space as well. House and land, um, you know, buy your site and build your, uh, build your box on it. Um, yeah, very, very popular. Uh, one of my former neighbors was massively involved in that space, very lucrative for him, I'm sure. Um, and and it makes typically quite an affordable uh, entry into the market for people because oftentimes where there's house and land, it's probably somewhere that's a little bit more far flung than being in an inner inner city, you know, blue chip type suburb. It's it's further out, it's, it's, it's gonna have uh, a lower price point to get in. Yeah, we're just driving out to um, Toowoomba a few weeks ago uh, for an event out there, and, and and you know you go through places like Plainlands, for example, which, no disrespect to Plainlands, home of Schultz's great little meat bar there, um, but you know is in the middle of nowhere effectively in the Lockyer Valley, and there are house and land packages there at extraordinarily cheap prices. So if you're looking to just get your marker in the marketplace, you could buy a house and land, you know, you know maybe three fifty for the dirt, and you know another three hundred for the build, and you've got a you know, four bedroom house for six hundred grand, which is you know, unheard of. 
but as I mentioned previously, location is so, so important. So, you know, that that's the trade-off. Uh, but House & Land is also quite popular with people in, in, you know, in super. You see a lot of self-managed supers getting set up to go into that sort of space too. You've got to be careful because if the purpose of what you've bought has changed materially with super, it can be a problem from a legislative point of view. And again, that means you've got to go back to experts in this field before you find yourself boxed in. You know, you can't buy something uh, that's a type of property in super and then look to materially change it, for example. It doesn't doesn't sit within the regulations and that's something you've got to be quite minded of. Um, commercial it, property, what about commercial property? Yeah, commercial's always an interesting one. I mean, the yield typically is a little higher, um, but you also run the risk that you've got probably a higher vacancy rate because you're arguably you know, more in tune with what's going on within the economic cycle. So I would suggest that, you know, and again, without really giving advice, um, when you're starting a property, start in residential. And then over time, uh, to diversify your portfolio, then start to consider commercial. And the reason for that is that, as I say, commercial property, you're much more in tune with the economic cycle. So someone needs somewhere to live. So if you're in residential, the rate vacant, what, what are the vacancy rates like at the moment? You know, oh, I think it's 0.6% in Queensland for mm-hmm. residential. It's not much. Not even 1%. Okay, so 06 in residential. So there's a very good chance that you're going to be able to let your residential property, if it's in good order, reasonable location and, and okay priced, you're going to find a tenant. Commercially, if you've got a warehouse and, and, and you're in the middle of a recession, it's much, much harder to find a tenant. That's why the yield or the rent typically is higher for periods of time to compensate for those vacancy rates that you can sometimes see. And you know, if you go through a protracted period where there's uh, a, yeah, a deeper slowdown in the economy, you can see literally rows of shops empty. I know, you know for example, where offices formerly were located on the Gold Coast, there was a, a spell there where you know, probably a third of the tenancies, the commercial tenancies were all empty because there was a glut of supply in that area. So you gotta be very, very minded of those things. That's why commercial is much further down the track. Renovation is an interesting one. Um, and my, my, my dear friend, Sherry Barber, uh, the, the absolute queen of renovations uh, and, and has made a very, very good business and life for herself out of that. Um, renovations are an interesting one and oftentimes it can appeal to people. And I, I think I've talked to this previously. Um, the idea I like of buying a, a property as a primary place of residence is always buy somewhere you can add value to it to improve the value, not just so it's moving in line with the market. And, and renovations are seen by many people as, well, this, this is great. I can, I can, uh, I can renovate and, and, and buy this, you know, crack den and turn it into a palace, which is obviously possible. It's been done. I've done similar things myself, but there are some challenges with that. Number one, it's still an investment property, so you got to put twenty percent down. So that means you've got eighty percent loan on it. And if you're not going to be, if, if you're not living in it, and there's no tenant living in it, where's the income coming from? What's well, coming out of your pocket, right? Right. So you've got to factor in the fact that you've got to be able to service the debt, and you then also have to pay for the renovation. And there is a ticking clock with this. And I know from when I've done new builds. New builds are relatively easy because it's blank canvas. You know, you own the joint and, and, and the last one I did, so we had a reasonably flexible settlement. The, the, uh, we could settle any time, so we said to the owners, yep, go find somewhere you want when you're ready, give us a week and we can settle. There's one thing we will ask, and I think it took them about six months in the end to find somewhere. The one thing we'll ask is that we get full access to survey, get plans drawn up and things like that. So if you get all that sort of work done before before you kick out the people that might be living in there and you start renovating, you've already got your plans, approvals, everything all in play, so you're ready to hit the ground running on day one. And that may sound a little pushy, but you'd be surprised how expensive it is to hold something that's vacant. And I've seen this when we've done 
office moves, for example, where we've needed to do a fit out, yeah, we've really gone around the clock to get that fit out done exceptionally quickly um, to make sure that we're in and, and, and the office is being used versus having something sitting empty for weeks and weeks while it's architects are coming in to measure things and the color palette's not right. You just got to get on with it. Uh, because there's a, there's a huge financial burden to holding something. So you've bought somewhere, there's no tenant in there, you're getting on with the, the renovation. Now, renovating right now, new, new builds are relatively easy because it's a blank canvas. When you're actually putting new to old, it can be very, very challenging. And remember I did one in London, it was a Victorian uh, warehouse conversion and everything in there was imperial and they were putting metric plumbing, for example. It's a really basic thing. but. That is a factor because you've got to connect things together. Uh, the, the wiring's got to be taken out because it's a fire hazard. All those different things. You've got to get permits. You've got to get development applications in. You've got to find a builder that's going to be sympathetic to do it, assuming you're not doing it yourself. And if you are doing it yourself, what time have you carved out? Um, yeah, what's your overrun schedule look like? What's the financial cost of having an overrun? Because I can guarantee it's going to take longer than what you think to get any of this stuff done. Sounds like fun. All, all especially, this, especially when there's you know, supply chain issues and, and, and things like that at the moment. So. Yeah, my wife and I were just about to do a church uh, where we live as an old church that came on the market. It could be spectacular. Got my builder in, quoted up. Yeah, you're looking at four grand a square meter to build. My builder's excellent. He's done a ton of work for us and, and I know he'd do a wonderful job. And then he's gone, let's have a look at the, 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 the wiring and some of the structural stuff in the older part because it's a renovation on a church with a new bit on the back. And it's like, yeah, that's 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 going to cost you a lot more because you've got to put new to old, which is always hard. So, you know, renovating is great. I think there's always something nice when you can take something and polish it up and bring it into the, the current time frame and keep its character and history. Is a, it, but that's an emotional feeling. And as we talk about in our trading, having an emotional feeling in any kind of investment is very, very dangerous because you stop being objective about what you're trying to achieve. So, yeah, renovating is not an entry point to make money quickly. It's actually very complex and it can be very expensive. So I'd be very cautious on, on, on that as one of your early early investment property uh, opportunities. It's not for everybody at all. Requires a specific set of skills, deep pockets, and very much a calendar that you can expect to overrun. So yeah, that's, that's in Gee that whiz. space. Yeah. Development, look, I mean, that's another different one. And again, that's starting to move much further up the food chain, um, you know, and development can be massively rewarding, um, you know, insofar as, um, you know, if you think about the, the, the sort of very basic formula, and again, you've got to get help with this stuff. I've got good buddies that are in the development space, they're experts in their field and the lens they look through, I can't, I, I pride myself on being half smart and like the lenses they look through at stuff is just like 4D and it's like, how did you see that? And it's just, that's what they do, they're experts in their yeah. field. Um, yeah, but the old, Historic formula for development is a third, third, third. So a third for the dirt, a third for the build, and then a third profit. Um, that of course has been turned on its head some with the building costs and things like that. So you know you do want to be very, very experienced um, and have pretty deep pockets if you're going into development. I've, I've got a, a, a good friend who's a client of it actually that's that's going through it at the moment where they did a development. And the development was actually very good when it worked out really well, except for the cost blew out. And, uh, and, and they're in a, in a deficit position where they'll lose money on it. The, the investors will make money, but they, they, they themselves will lose money on it, uh, which is a real shame. And that is one of the big risks. And, and the numbers are solid. You know, it's not like, oh, 10 grand here or 10 grand there. There's digits added to that significantly. So, yep, that's somewhere to aspire toward over time. It's definitely not a starting point. And for anyone, you know, reading a book or listening to our podcast, this isn't a goal to be a developer. You need specialist skills on doing that and be a master of that particular lane. Gotcha.
There's a lot there, AB. Now, to talk to our final point today, yes, there is more. This is the first three-hour podcast. Yes, that's right. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a huge topic. It's a big game, mm-hmm. and that's why a lot of people like to play in it because yeah. there are so many opportunities. What, finally, are the considerations with all of this, CGT, tax, time, yeah. letting agents, everything that you can think of? Yeah, look, structuring, I think, is, is, is always going to be one of the most important things as you move further along you know, the financial planning journey. Meat and potatoes is your primary place of residence. And, and we've talked to the fact that, yeah, it's tax-free and you've got to have somewhere to live and it's about utility, not just making money. So there's a different set of lenses. When you move into the making money phase, um, I think, you know, getting that advice on structuring is absolutely key. So there are tax uh, CGT concessions. You know, if you're in a company, for example, it's a 50% concession on that if you're over 12 months and different things in that space. And again, it's your accountant's job to to give you the appropriate advice on that. So structuring structuring is, is, is really, really important. Some of the other areas in there as you move through is, again, building that team. And we've talked previously about the importance of having a team. And, and at a high level, we've talked about a good accountant, a good lawyer, uh, and a good money coach for one of a better description. As you move down you know, into these sort of rabbit holes, I suppose, the, the team you need to build around you um, need to be more nuanced. So for example, and it's a basic one, letting agent, getting a good letting agent, you can get a letting agent, there's millions of them out there, getting a good one, yeah, that's a little bit more challenging. Just went through that. You've just been through this exact process yep. where you know, you're getting messed around for what, two months? Two months, couldn't get my house rented in a state that has a 0.6% vacancy rate, mm. four bedroom, three bathroom, just crazy. Switch switch letting agents? What three happened? days, bang, Three days rented. done, there you go. So you know, you've got to make sure you've got the right people. And to that point, I think, this, this becomes a challenge for interstate investing, uh, which yeah, we haven't talked about yet from, from, from an investment spot. And, and that can create problems with tax. That's something, again, that you've got to talk to your accountant on because there are a couple of states that are looking to be significantly more punitive on land tax for investors. Again, it's a specialist skill. If you're in that space, you need to understand, understand that. It's beyond the scope of the podcast to teach you that. Um, but yeah, you've got, you've, you, you, you've got to have good quality people when they're doing the landlord inspection for you, for example. And I've been through this myself. I had a, a, a couple of other properties down in Melbourne and they did that. One of them was a, it was a, it was a, it was a, it wasn't a new build, but it was a full renovation. I did a, it was a, like 10, 10, two bed, uh, 10, one bed apartment block that we converted into the one bed as we converted into two, uh, put a couple of new dwellings on there and, and did an internal external renovation, really, really big project. And, the tenant had come in and the landlord's got inspection had been done by the letting agent and the, the tenant had burnt a hole, not burnt a hole in the bench, but burnt the new, brand new workbench pretty badly oh, no. in the kitchen, set fire to the curtains in the kitchen because they put the toaster under it. And you know, the, and I, I, I'm looking at this because I went down and, and, and did an inspection. What says, oh, that's fair wear and tear. That's not fair wear and tear. Definitely and, not. And so, you know, letting agents are just, and this is going to sound maybe a little little aggro, but my experience with them hasn't been, hasn't been brilliant over the years. Uh, they're just collecting a, collecting a, they're just punching the ticket on the way through and taking a clip on the way through. And, and if they can keep you happy as a landlord, great. They just don't want to rock the boat. Uh, they've got to do work to find a new tenant after if they rock the boat. So just better leaving everything as a status quo. And they tend to not be pushing as hard for you, given the fact that you're the person that pays the bills, which is a little unconscionable. So I'd always make sure where at all possible you do property visits with the letting agent. That's Difficult to do when your properties are interstate or a little bit more you know, diverse as to where they are, but I think it's a really important thing because ultimately it's your money, your asset there, and you need to be well on top of it. Um, yeah, a, a huge one is getting a, a depreciation report done, uh, and so many people that perhaps haven't taken the time to to really upskill uh, and learn 
about the world of investment properties would be blissfully unaware of what a depreciation schedule is, and it literally is. And there are companies that specialize in this, and your accountant had better put you on. We've got two or three that we could refer to as well. And they'll go through literally everything on a line by line saying, you can claim this, you can claim this, you can claim this, you can claim this, you can claim this. And, and you're entitled to do that. And again, a lot of people will be rolling their eyes going, oh, the rich get richer and they're just playing the game. Our job is just to fall into line with the rules that are laid out there and getting a depreciation report can be absolutely massive, especially if it's a new build, as we talked of earlier, because your ability to depreciate stuff in a new build is, is, is ferocious and you are allowed to do this. If it were wrong, then you're not going to do it. But if you can, then you should. It's as simple as that. And, and, and that, that, that's the relative. If you can, you should. Um, so getting that depreciation report done is, is crucial. And getting it done regularly, don't get one done every blue moon, get it done every year for what it costs. And it's also de- it's also a deductible expense anyway. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, it, it's worth its, its weight in gold. Um, likewise, yeah, with your insurance, making sure basic things like landlord insurance are in play. Uh, most, most letting agents push that quite hard because they get a clip on it. But it is a really, really important thing to, to get taken care of. So that means if the place gets trashed, um, you can also get, um, you can get insurance for if it's vacant for a period of time too. Obviously, you know, it's like income protection. It's like the worst case scenario kind of stuff. Um, so there's a myriad of different types of insurance that you can put in there. So it's not just the building, but also, um, you know, your landlord rights in there as well. If you've got to take litigation against a tenant, that sort of stuff. Um, again, these, these, these are really important things. Real basic one, fire alarms. Yeah, your letting agent should be across all of that as a legal requirement as a landlord to make sure that your smoke detectors and all the fire stuff is up to spec and regularly serviced because you're on the hook for something if it goes wrong. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and again, these are things that you learn from being in that space and that you need to know the rules of the game before you start. And they're only really, they're only really simple things, they're basics, but they're also incredibly important in that particular niche to get done. In just the same way at home, I always use my birthday for doing the fire alarms at home. I remember I do them every year, make sure they're serviced on my birthday and then I know it's done for the year. And it's just an easy one for me to remember because I'm not that old where I've forgotten when my birthday is yet. (laughs) Um, I haven't reached the Biden stage yet, but there we go. Uh, Refinance probably the last one uh, in there as well. Uh, and, And I think, you know, the ability to use finance quite structured as, as a property investor is, is crucial because it is buying an investment property is one thing but when you start to build a portfolio of them up uh, the, the, there's some work to be done on the finance side so the traditional model is okay build up some equity take the equity out buy your next investment property so you've got this house of cards where you've got maybe 10 20 30 40 investment properties but none of them particularly have a lot of equity in them uh, which means you can push the the game plan wider by owning more properties, but the depth isn't there in terms of the equity that's in them. So you don't have that ability to ride out you know, a, a, a severe downturn in the market and get, get the bank requiring more capital. Um, so refinancing, why would you do it? Number one, it gives you that equity to buy another property, but you need to do so carefully. You don't want to overgear um, because it leaves you in a very vulnerable position. Um, the flip side of it, having a, a wide range of, of property, obviously, A, it's diversified like a share portfolio, and if it's negatively geared, life is good. But you've just got to be minded of the risks associated with that. Secondly, refinancing when rates change. So you might be to get a better deal, or you might want to lock in where you're at for a period of time that's longer if rates are on the way up. Um, you know, and if you look in the US, you know, most ho- home loans after the GFC are on a 30-year fixed rate. 
at, at very, very low levels. So Great. yeah, absolutely brilliant if you had the foresight to do that as you move into a rising uh, sort of uh, time of interest rates and refinancing probably you know, is something you need to be increasingly aware of if you can get a better deal somewhere else. You've got to keep looking through uh, and doing that because it's all about, I guess, you know, in, in, in summer, if you talk about investment property, the biggest financial decision people typically make is their primary place of residence. And if you then get a taste for property and move into investment properties, the reason these microscopically thin layers of Kevlar, if you want to think of it in that way, is so important is that you know, a little bit of insurance here, a better finance rate here, slightly better depreciation here. Doesn't sound like it's a lot when it's only sort of 0.1, 0.2, but if it's on 10, 20, 30, $50 million worth of property, which people can have, that tiny slither of adjustment is worth hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars to the bottom line. And if you're not at that stage yet and you've just got your first or second investment property, if you've got two investment properties, you're gonna over you're gonna have over a million dollars worth of property. So 0.2 here or 0.2 there on over a million back starts to blow out. So the devil is in the detail. And I can't stress how important it is to get expert qualified advice on the absolute nuances of playing in that space. And if you do that, you're gonna have a very successful career as an investment property uh, owner. And if you try and shortcut it, or yeah, I've got this, or I read something online, it can blow up spectacularly. So get really, really good advice on it, right the way from understanding the type of strategy, whether it's positively or negatively geared, the type of underlying asset, whether it's regional, rural, commercial, is it a renovate, is it, is it, is it gonna be a multi-dwelling? Uh, it, you know, it, it, and all the different house and land, every different nuance that's in there. And then the tax and structuring advice on the actual operations of that to make sure you get the most out of it. Surround yourself by good people, you get a good outcome, but you've gotta be prepared to weed the garden. And if you're getting poor advice or someone that's getting a bit lazy, as we've talked about with relationship fatigue in the past, especially when it comes to letting agents, as you've done yourself, get them out done. It's your property. It's your asset. It's by the book. Run it tight and uh, you can set yourself up for an incredibly lucrative future. And do you know something from a moral compass perspective, given how horrific landlords are portrayed in the media, you're also providing people somewhere to live when they can't afford to buy some of themselves. So you can go to bed at night going, I'm actually doing some good out there. That's right. AB, thank you very much. Big episode, plenty of info in there. Really enjoyed it. Thanks very much. Absolute pleasure. Anytime, Mitch. There you have it, guys. Make sure you give us a review and a rating, and we'll look forward to hosting you next week.